You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths. As you may know, we're in between seasons. I'm currently writing season two, which we intend to launch this fall. But in the interim, we'd like to share with you the work of other great writers and artists. On this episode, we're bringing you a collaboration between writer Peter Hoffmeister and an experimental post-rock trio known as Mankind. This collaboration was spearheaded by Mankind drummer, graphic designer, and fine artist Courtney Stubbert. It's his art you see on the cover. You can see more of his work at CourtneyStubbert.com. It was Courtney who introduced me to Peter Hoffmeister. Hoffmeister's work might be familiar to you through his novel Graphic the Valley, which I reviewed on my blog when it came out. Or you might have read his memoir, The End of Boys, or one of his other books, or his Huffington Post articles, or his excellent blog, or perhaps you saw the piece about him in Vice. In any case, he's a great writer, and one of the first people I'd ever met who had actually had a book published. So of course, when I decided to make a go at a writing career, I asked him to read some of my stuff, and I'll always be grateful to him for his honesty. And so with no further, you know, whatever, I give you a narrative collaboration between Mankind and Peter Hoffmeister, The Great American Afterlife. Pregnant and drinking dark beer out of a pint glass, and I couldn't see who was buying her drinks. She had Kanye West sunglasses on, fly lenses with sparkles down the sides like drips of ice cream. I was playing pool at the next table, fake like I needed to chalk up so I could watch her. A little black dress, not long enough for the big stretch of her belly and her thighs smooth, the skin of someone eight months along. I tried not to look at her as she bent over the table, her round front touching the velvet, but it was difficult to look away. I counted her drinks. I didn't mean to count her drinks because I hate drink counters, but I counted them anyway because I was alone and I didn't have anything else to do. And numbers-wise, she wasn't too terrible. Three pints in two hours. After she finished her second pint, I saw a girl at the left side of the bar bring her a new one. The girl waited until the bartender was at the far end, taking orders. Then she walked over and put a new beer on the table without saying anything. There was no money exchanged. Three pints in two hours, so she couldn't really be drunk. But something about the sadness of it made me think of you. When I passed her in the space between the tables, I said, 
Sorry, I excuse me. I had to step around her then while she was bent over to take a shot. And being there, behind her, behind that dress, slid up high above those thighs, where the lines made the sides of a four-pointed star. I felt like I was running a skill saw too close to my own fingers. While she was drinking her third beer, I said, Hey, I don't mean to bother you, but I was just wondering. Yeah, I sounded that cliche. She turned around with her sunglasses still on, and without her eyes, I couldn't tell if she was smiling. I said, since we've both been playing alone, uh, I thought maybe we could play on the same table. She lifted her glasses then, her eyes like too much green food coloring. She said, you want to play pool with me? Yeah, I said, I mean, if you want to shoot eight ball or something instead of just playing alone. She took a sip of her beer, rolled her neck out and said, okay. And she won all three games. Later, at my apartment, we were alone in the living room and I was trying to decide if I should offer her another drink, unsure of whether or not it was the right thing to do. Then she said, I want someone inside of me. I said, okay, yeah, and pointed at her stomach because I thought she was talking about the baby. But she walked over to where I was sitting on the couch and pulled down her underwear. She said, he never touched me afterward, you know? Do you think I'm too ugly like this? She held her hands over the front of her, where her stomach was biggest, like she was trying to keep the baby inside, trying to hold it through her skin. I leaned forward on the couch and said, no, you aren't ugly exactly how I sounded. I felt her belly during with her sitting on my lap on the couch and it was perfect, so smooth and round and everything you and I always wanted. She stayed with me too that night in the bed that you bought when we were setting up this apartment together. She put on my t-shirt and shorts and I held her afterward and I thought it was you I was holding, but it wasn't you because I woke up to go to the bathroom and before I left the bed, I smelled between her shoulder blades and it wasn't you at all. I know it's weird to tell you all of this, but it's true and maybe it doesn't bother you. To be honest, I don't know what would bother you now. You're my best friend, I think, and I don't know anything about you anymore. Sometimes I dial your number and wait, look at the digits on my screen until my eyes get tired, and I start imagining that the numbers are spelling words in a language I've never learned. I look down at those numbers that are supposed to mean you but don't mean you anymore. Not at all. 
but I never hit send. I know where you are right now. You're looking back and forth between the refrigerator and the clock over the stove. You're holding your left hand on your stomach and your right hand on the refrigerator's handle. You never eat past eight o'clock and it's 7.50. You're wondering if you have enough time to cook a quesadilla and eat it before the clock turns eight. I can hear you say, ugh, then close the door. Drink a cup of skim milk and go brush your teeth. In bed, you flip the pages of your novel too fast and I know that you're skimming. I looked up today and saw two Canadian geese flying south. Not a whole flock, but two, one just behind the other. The leaves were down all around me and I noticed again that maple leaves smell different than oak leaves on the ground. That one fallen Dexter, I said, they smell so good. I wonder what it is in maple leaves. But you looked at me and took a swig out of the wine bottle. You said, it's maple. This apartment's walls are too white. I could paint them. Not a color, though, but painting the way you do with sticks and Brillo pads and putty knives and dental floss. And maybe I'll do the layer thing and that other thing you showed me with sandpaper or wax and wood glue. I don't know. I went to a modern art show the other day and everything looked like you but different. One artist's work was only in the color pink, just pink. And I heard myself say your line, monochromatic, because I'm an artist dramatic. I said it too loud though, and the guy next to me said, this is actually post-pop deconstruction. He was wearing horn-rimmed glasses and a t-shirt that said, I don't eat anything that casts a shadow. I laughed and he said, what are you laughing at? He must have been the artist. I said, nothing, I've just been here before. It was like your MFA group shows when you were at Oregon. There were all those empty Henry's bottles, brown and green on the table in the middle and the collection got wider as the night went on. At 11 o'clock, a guy with a scarf and a black beret started running his fingers across the tops of all the bottles. Turning to face the group, he said, Beer bottle installation, people? And everyone laughed. But not me. I didn't have a turtleneck on. I ran into your mom at the supermarket last weekend. We hit carts front to front, and I could tell she was still going to pretend like she hadn't seen me. So I said, hey, Mrs. G. She tilted her head to the side and said, how are you, Brian? Not bad, I said, really, not too bad. No, but how are you? She said. I rocked my cart back and forth. One of the front wheels wouldn't track and I kept trying to get it straight. Actually, I'm doing well, 
I said. Sort of. Yeah, pretty well. She looked at me like I was an injured animal at a rescue shelter, and I kept nodding. I had poison oak on my leg, and I wanted to scratch it, but I didn't want it to keep spreading. When I first came in the store, I'd been considering getting drunk. Thinking about drinking by myself that night in my apartment and running into your mom made me certain. I finished my first beer in the car before I even turned the key in the ignition. That initial time in the doctor's office was weird. Uh, the doctor put a question mark at the end of each declarative sentence. He said, there are blue gowns in the closet behind you. And we'll see what we've got here. You twisted your lip the way you do when you're trying not to laugh nervously. Then he said, I noticed you both have wedding rings on. But you pulled yours off and laughed. You said, it's too big. It comes off all the time. Actually, it comes off pretty easily. I tried to pull my ring off to join you, but my knuckle was too fat and the ring stuck. Mine's secure, I said. No losing this little baby. Both you and the doctor spun around when I said that, and I said, I didn't mean, you know. Last week, I didn't get that job. The investments won. Everyone said I'd get it, but I didn't. I called in sick to my work the night before, then went over to the bank in the morning. The receptionist led me to the elevator, and I waited in an upper lobby full of brown leather chairs. I kept thinking that if you were there, you would have hated the decor. They tried to match the brown chairs with the maroon walls and the orange planter boxes. They were going for avant-garde, but everything looked garish, like a drunken clown was their decorator. I waited 20 minutes, trying to decide if Cigar Aficionado was more interesting to read than People magazine. I couldn't decide, so I didn't read either one. When I was shown into the executive's office for the interview, I was surprised that she was younger than me. She was wearing a wool dress suit and a silver Tug Hauer watch. She shook my hand like she was trying to crush it. I wasn't prepared for that, or for anything. She said, welcome, have a seat, and she pointed. Something was bothering me from the start, but I didn't know what it was. She said, how's your morning going? I said, it's going well, thank you. She said, would you like a cup of coffee or tea? I said, no, thank you. I looked at her across the desk. She had thick brown hair still wet from her morning shower. And that was it, the thing that was bothering me. Her conditioner was your conditioner, the same brand, Pantene Pro-V, and I could smell it in the office like it was stuck against my face. I kept trying to block out that smell, but I was smelling you the whole time thinking about you and I wished I was in bed with you right then, spooning with your damp hair against my face. And that was all I could think about. I kept saying, sorry, could you repeat the last question? And her pauses got longer and longer 
like her questions were all followed by ellipses. Do you remember when you woke up saying Cocoa Puffs in bed? My favorite cereal? That was weird. And then you told me that you didn't even like them. I said, have you been pretending to like them all this time? And you said, yes. How could you pretend to like them? Well, he said, I wanted to like them. I tried to like them for you, but I don't like how they turn the milk brown. That's the best part, I said. It's free chocolate milk. You said, no, I just don't like them. I was driving up the river the other day and I went past Tokaji Golf Course on Highway 126. It made me think of how we'd hide out by the 15th hole when we were 13 years old. The one that was 135 yards to the pin with a little hill in the middle shaped like an upside down V steep on both sides. We'd wait for a group to tee off, then run and put one of their balls in the cup, drop it right in the hole next to the flag. Then we'd run and hide again before they got over the hill. And when they got to the green, they'd walk around, shake their heads for a while, saying things like, I thought I hooked it a little bit, but I can't find it. Or, Maybe I pushed it down in that draw over there. Then one of them would see it sitting in the hole, wedged against the pin, and he'd start screaming and jumping around, and pretty soon everybody would be jumping around. Sometimes they'd even open beers and celebrate, signing each other's scorecards as witnesses. We used to laugh so hard that we were sure they'd hear us over in the trees, rolling around, and you'd get tears in your eyes and say, perfect that's just too perfect and I always liked that about you how you laughed and held your stomach remember that one time you put two balls in the hole two balls out of four and I said whoa that's taking it too far but you said you can never take anything too far and you got that serious look on your face like you were watching a truck go off the road. And the next summer, you walked up to my porch on July 2nd. I remember the date exactly. You showed me your palms as if you had something sticking there. But they were clean and you said, well, that's it. What's it, I said. I didn't know what you were talking about. You said, I did it. Did what? I was retying my shoes on the porch, but I stopped to look at your face. Your tone was weird. It. I did it, it. You said, it, it. We talked about it before, what it would be like. You said, yeah, it. Your palms turned once more until they were facing straight up like they were lifting something invisible. With who, I said, and when? With that kid from the store, the football player, the 16-year-old. He's the dumb one I went fishing with twice. 
I laughed, but not because it was funny. I said, why would you do that? My voice cracked. I was bored, I guess. I just wanted to know. I looked down. I untied and retied my shoes twice more to give myself a minute. I said, I gotta get these shoes tight. They've been bothering me. Your shoes, she said. Yeah, I said, they're annoying. You told me the details later when we were walking on the river trail in the woods, even though I didn't want to hear them. You said he was heavy and awkward on top of you. How he kept his t-shirt on. How he didn't have it right at first and you had to shift your hips underneath him to get it in the right place. You said that it hurt, but not as much as you thought it would, and that he had tears in his eyes afterward. That's what you said. He denied it, but you said, I know what I saw. I remember all of that. I cried the first time with you too, but I didn't try to hide it, not at all. It was July 14th, 12 days later. I wrote it down on a piece of newspaper that I still have in an old copy of Huck Finn I keep by my bed. I cried right after we finished when we were lying on the cot in the bunkhouse and my mouth was on your collarbone, my teeth pressing the skin like they might go through. I wondered what it would feel like to bite through your skin. Everything was like that. Like that morning you hit the mama cat with our car last year. The sunrise was orange on the clouds and you said, I'm gonna go get coffees for us, watch the kittens, okay? Okay, I said. The kittens were 13 days old. I heard the car start, then I heard you scream. You had her in your arms when you came in, her head turned the wrong way. The black fur at her neck twisted into little spikes. You said, I didn't know she was behind the car. The vet gave us little bottles, and we stayed up with the kittens for the next week, feeding them every two hours, but it didn't matter. One by one, I took them out to the trash can until there weren't any left in the laundry room box. And you said, this is why, I know it. No, I said, this has nothing to do with it. This is just an unlucky thing. Two days ago, I was waiting at the bus stop and a girl walked up to me. She said, can I bum a smoke? I looked at her. She was a girl girl, a little girl, about seven years old. She said, do you have one or what? Or what? I said, are you really asking me for a cigarette? She looked at me like I was a map she couldn't read. I said, is it for your mom? No, she said. Then I said, I don't think so. She shrugged and said, suit yourself. 
I saw her later as she was smoking outside of a bar down the block. She leaned back with one leg up, like she was a little girl in a foreign film. And you know how much I hate foreign films. I was at work yesterday, and I kept thinking about that last visit to the doctors, when he kept saying all those words in a final way, and he never added any question marks to anything, even questions. You and I were crying, and we went to McMinniman's afterwards to get hamburgers because the doctor told us to go eat something, to have a nice dinner. And there was a little girl there, and you said, that's what she'd look like. And I said, I'm so sorry, I really am. It was with the guy at the show, John, what's his name, I know. You talk to him with your face too close to his face, opening your eyes and your mouth like when you put on mascara. You kept nodding and I saw you bite your lip and he leaned in a little as he laughed. I walked over by you two, but you didn't notice me. And after a while, I walked away to get another drink. I swear that he touched your face that night. I know you say that he didn't, not then, but I looked back from the bar and his hand was on your face. His big thumb was touching your cheek and his fingers were down along the side of your throat. There were months when I knew. I didn't want to know, but I did, and I wouldn't come home right away. I'd run errands instead of coming home, get things like printer paper or rice, or something else we already had enough of because I knew. I knew so much that my knowing was like taking a multivitamin on an empty stomach. Then when I walked in, you wouldn't say anything to me, and I'd try to hug you from behind, but you'd say that your back was hurting. You'd say, be careful with me, and your whole body would stiffen. And I was careful with you, but careful never fixed anything. pregnant girl from the bar. She said, Alexandra, and shook my hand as if we were meeting for the first time. But you can call me Alex. I hadn't seen her in two weeks and I didn't know if she'd had the baby. Then she showed up and was still pregnant. It was easy to tell how pregnant she was, even through her coat. I said, not yet, huh? because I couldn't think of anything else to say at first. No, she laughed. Still a couple of weeks away. We sat on the couch drinking lemon tea. She had her legs curled up underneath her belly, and I noticed how small she was except for that stomach. She had jeans on, large and low slung. The open fly connected by two blue rubber bands that she'd run through the eye hole and around the button. She smeared on chapstick with her lips in a kiss shape and said, you want some? And held it out to me. I kissed her, felt her belly again under her shirt, that skin, 
and I've never felt anything so smooth in my entire life. She stayed the night again. I spooned into her, and she felt better than the first time. More natural, and my hand was there. And she cried for a while, then said, thank you. I said, for what? She whispered thank you again right before she fell asleep. I got up early this morning and made coffee for myself and decaf tea for Alex. And she stayed until I had to go to work at nine. When I kissed her goodbye, I said, can I pick you up for dinner? She put on her coat and said, yes. She wrote down her address. As she backed out of the parking space, only her head was showing. And I couldn't tell that she was pregnant from that angle. With her big eyes, she reminded me of one of those Cupid dolls. After she left, I decided to call in sick to work. I told them that I had food poisoning. I went into the bathroom, looked for something of yours that might have gotten mixed in with my toiletries. Scented vitamin E oil, coconut lotion or conditioner, but I didn't find anything. Then I went and smelled through all of my t-shirts. The ones that hadn't been washed yet. The ones you might have worn to sleep. I was standing in my bedroom, holding up one t-shirt after another, inhaling, closing my eyes. But you were nowhere, and I stuffed them back into the plastic garbage bags on the floor. I'm in my chair in the still white living room, waiting for evening wearing boxers, hands on the armrests and bare feet on the carpet. I might read a book and I might make some coffee. Or I might read a book after I make some coffee. I don't know. You'll be getting home soon, but not here.
You've been listening to The Great American Afterlife on the Lies and Half-Truths podcast. The Great American Afterlife was written and read by Peter Hoffmeister. Music by Mankind, who is Courtney Stubbert, John Hurd, and James Madsen. For more on these artists, see the iTunes show notes. Meg Weber produced this episode, along with myself, your host, A.P. Weber. Thanks for listening.